Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews, and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. I really do think that, yes, how we are to one another engages the issue of power, of hierarchy, of prominence, of sexuality, of race, of class, all those things that have to be spoken together that can never be separated. Just trying to make rock artistic, you know, and sort of make art out of, you know, guitars and, and drums and bass. Smart Arts. News, reviews and interviews about the arts with Richard Watts. Hello. Big thanks to the Breakfasters for the last three hours and uh, also big thanks to Billy for filling in for me three weeks ago when I was struck down by my first major bout of depression in two months. Um, Spent eight days feeling miserable as hell, so nice to know that somebody could step in and play some excellent tunes for me. Then, after being miserable as hell, I managed to get physically sick. So far, I've tested negative to COVID, pneumonia, um, RSV and whooping cough, uh, but nonetheless uh, was coughing my lungs up for two weeks and not able to do the show. So Tim Thorpe stepped in, did an excellent music film. And then last week, Steph and Dan Tittlebaum stepped in and did a, uh, a traditional smart arts film with actual guests. Hurrah. And so thank you all. And thanks to Adam, my producer, for not panicking when I texted him uh, at, I don't know, 7.30 in the morning saying, I can't do the show today. Uh, And thanks to all my guests for their patience and understanding in rescheduling things. And thanks to you. Uh, I've missed you. It's nice to be back. On the show today, uh, lots to talk about. We're going to talk about the upcoming remount of the production Yentl, which wowed audiences at Arts Centre Melbourne in 2022. It's been picked up by the Malt House, so we'll be finding out very much about that in lots of detail in about eight minutes' time. At about 9.30, I'm very much looking forward to chatting to the Irish band The Merry Wallopers, who are touring in May this year, playing at the Thorn... No, the Northcote Theatre. Um, and uh, also on the show, we've got Science Museum at University of Melbourne. We've got the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra talking about new compositions, new music, exciting young composers, and more. Uh, So do stick around uh, while I catch my breath, because I literally ran in the door about one minute before I was due on air, because because of the heat, I overslept through my alarm because I'd had a terrible night's sleep. Anyway, enough of me. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. I'm delighted to be joined in the studio by Gary Abrahams, who's the director 
of Yentl, a production showing at Malthouse Theatre. Gary is also one of three co-writers of the work, which originally premiered at Art Centre Melbourne back in 2022. Uh, but also in the studio with us is Evelyn Crape, who is performing in the show in a variety of roles, uh, but is also the co-artistic director of uh, Kadima Yiddish Theatre. Now, have I pronounced... Kad- no. ah, Kadima. Kadima. Ah. Your My brain... I, were slightly wrong. I... I said it and then I instantly went no no not quite the right pronunciation but welcome to you both good morning thank you now Yentl some people will be familiar with a certain saccharine film of the same name the rights of which are vociferously controlled by a certain celebrity so uh, we won't talk about that film (laughs) we will go back to the original short story written in Yiddish which this theatre production is adapting and based upon. Gary, as one of the, the co-writers as well as director, let's start with you. Yeah, I mean, look, we, 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 we won't say her name, but we all know which, which film we're talking about, and that was my first uh, encounter with the story. And so when the discussion began about, you know, adapting this for the stage and we returned to the original short story, I just realised how much the story needed to be rescued from that film um, because it, it is very saccharine and sentimental and there's a lot to love about the film. Um, but actually the story itself is so much darker, mis- more mysterious and actually much more politically complicated than the film. You know, you be- what becomes so apparent in the story is really the sort of gender identity questions of it. And it feels like such a contemporary conversation told through such an interesting lens. When was the short story written? In the late 50s and published in 1962. But the story is set in the late 1800s in sort of, you know, an Eastern European country, Lithuania, Poland. And concerning a, a young woman who wants to follow in the footsteps of her father, a rabbi, but can't because women at that time, uh, uh, because of religious taboo, are prohibited from uh, from uh, studying. Studying, and mm. uh, and so she masquerades as a man in a classic kind of uh, tradition. Uh, there are echoes of some Shakespeare in Absolutely. this. There are some echoes of um, I don't know. Uh, Kind of pursuing somebody, uh, kind of a, a woman dressed as a man wooing a woman to make her love another man. Kind of. There's this wonderful sort of triangle that sits at the centre of the story. Yeah. So you're right. So Yentl, after her father passes away, she does masquerade as a man um, to, and to enter a yeshiva to be able to study. And there she meets Avigdor. And Avigdor actually starts to fall in love with Yentl, which is very confusing to Avigdor because he can't understand why he's suddenly having these homoerotic urges to this young boy um but he doesn't know that she's a girl and then she's all then yentl has to start wooing hodas who is avigdor's ex-fiance and hodas starts falling in love with yentl and yentl's falling in love with hodas and anyway there's this great sort of gender sexuality thing at the center of it, it. really does sound incredibly contemporary it's amazing and w- w- the other interesting thing about it you, when you say it's like shakespeare the, the short story is 19 pages. It's not very long. But embedded in it, you discover, you have to discover, both as a reader, as in a director, actor, writer, that there is so much of what Gary's just been talking about actually there, even if it isn't explicitly said. Mm. And people who know the work have taught it in Yiddish 
come to us and say, that's amazing what you've put up there on stage because you've taken it further than the story. And I say, no, go back and have a look. So, you know. Yeah, particularly your character, I think. You know, yeah. the story invents this character that Evelyn plays, which is based on, it's sort of this, this, this concept of your evil inclination. Not that it is necessarily evil. It, in Yiddish, it's the Yetzahara. And, and it's that part in all of us which wants to rebel and wants to push against. Uh, the norms, and that can either t- be for the good or it, it's not necessarily good or bad. But history is changed and history is made by the rebels, and we really kind of see Yentl through her yet to horror, her evil inclination, um, starting a new path forward for women, you know. And Evelyn, you play a couple of other characters as well, don't you? Well, it's basically the Yetzirah, this evil inclination, who plays her father, who plays these shocking boys in the yeshiva, um, which... Yentl encounters and everything and a neighbour. Yeah, I play lots of things, but but it's always with the Yetzirah playing them, playing them so that Yentl has something to come up against. Remember, for this young girl, the only person she would male that she would have touched would be her father, and so when she, her father dies and she decides to dress in his clothes and go. Uh, because she does not want to live as a woman. She does not want to get married. She doesn't want to be a wife. Um, she encounters the world. And I, as the Etzahara, make sure that she encounters the best and the worst, mainly the worst. Because yeah. <laughs> there's this other central question at the heart of the story, which is everything is foreseen fate, but free will is given. And it's this deliciously sort of cruel conundrum that sits mm. at the heart of the story and 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 Yentl's own sort of journey you know is what she's doing kind of God's will or is she actually sinning and going against God and that that inner conflict is at the crux of the story that we explore what's also intriguing is that the two main characters are each you have an actor playing a character, but that character is playing other roles. So, again, that layering, that masking, that questioning of identity is, again, such a contemporary issue at the very heart of a story set in the 1800s. Well, it's all about identity and performativity and, and actually finding who your authentic self is to actually drop the mask. You know, it's more that it's more than she just masquerades as a boy just at the very beginning. I mean, Yentl is genuinely confused about her soul. She, as, as Evelyn says... Her, her father says to her, you have the body of a woman but the soul of a man. So we've got a trans kind of layer well, being added and in, if, perhaps. Well, and if Isaac Bathsheba Singer had been alive today or had written it today, would it have been a trans? It wouldn't have been that interesting if she'd been trans mm. straight up. There'd be no drama. And but, yeah, it's, it's about the subtext that makes it so right. fascinating, not and the, the discovery the, of but, that. But she was, Yenta was apparently based on his sister. You know, the, the, his sister was sort of one of the springboards for the story because he had a sister who really wanted to study and was very angry all her life that she wasn't allowed to, to do that and given what men were given. Yeah, so it comes from a very kind of real place and his understanding of Ooh. that. That's yeah. true, yeah, yeah. Evelyn, what's it like to be remounting this production now in 2024 after its huge success in 2022? I think we're really lucky when we get to do a show again, particularly one that was, as you say, as successful. Well, because you four and a half stars from. from uh, arts, uh, no, from the uh, age. Arts gave us five. Five star- much, Yes, Richard. I was looking at the wrong review. Five stars <laughs> from Arts Hub, four and a half stars from the age. So yeah, no, it's it's great because you do actually discover so much more, and we do have a new Yentl, 
Amy Hack, who is beautiful. She's gorgeous in the role. She is a very emotionally dynamic Yentl. Um, she's fearless, um, which is great. But for me, because a lot of it is in Yiddish, and it's not just everyday Yiddish. It's quite difficult conceptual Yiddish so it's been good to be able to come back and do all that again and to rediscover um, mm. you know who I am more than just pushing you know I think you know I've discovered more than just the evil side of this yeah of I'll, this I'll also camp. say sort of last time it's we staged it just after COVID just as we were coming out of lockdowns mm. so we actually while it was a great success we didn't have huge audiences last because time. people were so nervous because people were really out. nervous you know yeah. so it, it was a wonderful success but uh, not enough people got a chance to see it so it's really exciting and we're so thankful to the Malthouse for programming mm-hmm. us this year so that you know we, we people can see the work yeah. um and uh, yeah and I suspect it also takes on contemporary residents as well given the the current situation in the middle east and the we are we have seen a rise of genuine anti-semitism i've seen neo-nazi stickers uh for example so kind of that coupled with the fact that um uh and without wanting to rehash old history the first time i visited the melbourne holocaust museum in elstonwick the realization that this is not just about the extermination of a people this was about an attempt to exterminate a culture a language and that kind of so to speak yiddish now still has such great resonance and great power and you've hit exactly on what kadima is about as an organization you know uh, you know yiddish as a language was put on the unesco's um, list of endangered languages but language contains more than just words you know language contains ideas ways of thinking and you're right an entire culture and what was so great about returning to the short story you know old yiddish culture is filled with its own superstitions its own ghosts dibbics golems you know this very kind of like earth forest bound um, underworld and it's great in, in this production that we get to explore all of that. And what's wonderful about Yentl in this story is that it, it has nothing to do with Israel. It doesn't, you know, to kind mm. of put it out there. It's set in a time in the late 1800s before Zionism was even a concept. Um, so it sits completely outside of that paradigm. And it is an exploration and a celebration of a culture. Um, but, yeah, and, but having said that, the way you phrase, you know, the way you put it, Richard, is, it, you know, makes me want to cry, really, because... We are putting Yentl there so that people who are so um, so angry about what's happening and, as you say, are using language to distort um, what is actually uh, true and not true. And us doing Yentl for us is really important so that um, we say to people, come and watch, come and listen and look at what Jews are not necessarily Zionism, which is getting very confused with Jewish. That's where the mm. anti-Semitism is sitting, in this ease with which people are going Zionist when they're really meaning Jew. So it's really important for us to put our work up there and say, you know, we have a humanity which you're overlooking. Come and have a look at what we're doing. It reinforces the value of art. That, Absolutely. that art, no matter what it's exploring, is a way to understand people. Mm-hmm. Uh, art uh, and theatre, 
I, I've used this phrase many times and I'll keep using it until the day I die because I think it's a beautiful word. I don't know whether I came up with it or not, but theatre is an empathy machine. 100%. Theatre allows you to feel other people's feelings, to walk in their shoes. Um, uh, and and, and theatre is actually at the heart of Yiddish culture. You know, back in the sort of 1700s, 1800s, it was Yiddish theatre that kind of led the way um, in, in America. I mean, Yiddish theatre is kind of the beginnings of Broadway. Uh, you know, because there were so many migrants, you know, moving out of Eastern Europe all across the world, they, they took with them their theatre, their stories, their music, their song. And it's kind of integral to sort of Jewish culture, that sense of storytelling and um, examining what it is to be alive, you know. And, and in fact, um, Yiddish was spoken by 80% of the 6 million Jews who died in the Holocaust. So that took an enormous chunk out of the Yiddish-speaking population. And there is a blossoming worldwide um, of Yiddish in communities that maybe you wouldn't expect, LGBTQI communities who are not necessarily Jewish, are learning Yiddish because it's seen as a language of the yeah. dispossessed. And, and we, we kind of want to, you know, we want all sort of minorities and migrant yeah. communities to kind of do the same. You mm. know, it's not that Yiddish necessarily needs to be so special. We want to encourage other smaller communities to kind of put their work out on the main stages. Um, you know, Melbourne is so full of mi- migrant communities and small communities who are very language-based and have their own culture and identity and stories, and it, it should all be on the main stages, you know, yeah. and shared with all. If you want to see um, uh, Kadima Yiddish Theatre's uh, remounting of their 2002 critically acclaimed play Yentl, it's on at the Malthouse Theatre from the 29th of February until the 17th of March in the Merlin. Uh, if you've not been to the Malthouse before, 113 Sturt Street, South Bank. It's right next to a large, rusty-looking building. You can't miss it. Um, Yentl is previewing, which means cheaper tickets, on Thursday the 29th of Feb and Friday the 1st of March and opening night is Saturday the 2nd of March with the season running as I said until March 17. Jump online www.malthousetheatre.com.au to book tickets to see what I missed out on in 2022. So I am personally thrilled uh, it's not like you do, you've done it particularly just for me as a favour, <laughs> but I am thrilled that Yentl uh, is coming back, that more audiences will have a chance to see it and that I too will be among one of those audiences once I get back from Adelaide Festival. Oh, so fantastic. I won't be at your opening night, That's fine. for which I apologise. Well, yeah. yeah. Great. So, Thanks, Richard. Thank you both thank for you. coming in. Thank, thank you. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Coming up, uh, we're going to find out about the Victorian premiere of critically acclaimed theatre production, Counting and Cracking. Now... This premiered at the Sydney Festival a few years ago, and I was lucky enough to see it later that same year at the Adelaide Festival. Cast of 19 from six different countries, speaking several languages on stage, translated live, uh, uh, running over three and a half hours, telling a decades-long family story from Sri Lanka to Australia. It's a remarkable piece of theatre, uh, and it's coming to Melbourne for Rising later this year in May and June, from the 31st of May to the 23rd of June. So very much looking forward to talking about that a little bit later on in the program. At 10.30, going to catch up with conductor Carlo 
uh, Antonioli to talk about When We Were Young, a free concert presented by Melbourne Symphony Orchestra at the Sydney Meyer Music Bowl, featuring new young composers and their works. I'll also be catching up with Bruce Gladwin from Black... Uh, Back to Back Theatre to talk about Back to Back's latest international award. Uh, they're the recipients of the Venice Biennale's Golden Lion Award for Lifetime Achievement in Theatre. Utterly well-deserved. Uh, Anne-Marie Peard will join us to review some recent theatre productions. I haven't seen any. I've been at home coughing my lungs out. Uh, and we'll also find out on the visual arts front about the exhibition Not Natural. Exploring the growing friction between what we consider natural and artificial, which is on its science gallery at the University of Melbourne. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Some lovely text messages this morning from people saying, good to have you back on air. So um, it's lovely to be back. Thank you uh, for your very supportive messages, including from you, uh, Shay, and everybody else who's texted me this morning. Um, Now, back in 2019, uh, I had the very great pleasure of going to Adelaide Festival, where I saw a truly memorable and potent and, I believe, important piece of theatre called Counting and Cracking. Uh, It is now finally um, uh, going to have its Victorian premiere as part of Rising, uh, Melbourne's winter festival, which runs from the 1st to the 16th of June. Counting and Cracking will have a special extended season running from the 31st of May to the 23rd of June. And if you go to rising.melbourne, there are pre-sales already available that you can register for and do not miss this show. Um, uh, I'm joined on the line by its writer and associate director, S. Uh, Shaktaharan. Uh, Shakti, welcome to Triple R. Thanks, man. Good to be here. Uh, a delight to be able to speak with you, particularly given the kind of the emotional roller coaster that uh, you <laughs> yeah. and your collaborators took me through when I saw this play at the Adelaide Showgrounds. Um, for people who are unfamiliar with Counting and Cracking, a brief synopsis, which I hope will do it justice, it's A family saga set across multiple generations, multiple decades, uh, and moving between Australia today, Sri Lanka in the past, and back again, with, what, uh, 19 people playing multiple characters and spoken in multiple languages. Is that a fair elevator pitch? Yep, that's about right. Yeah, the actors come from six different countries, too. Which, getting them to reunite for a remount must be a challenge. How many of the cast are new, and how many of them are the old cast returning? Uh, We were lucky enough to take the show in um, 2022 to Edinburgh Festival and Birmingham for the Commonwealth Games. Um, And uh, so most of the cast that that came together for that tour are back again. Uh, The internationals in particular, it's a very special show for them, and so they, they shift their Bollywood film schedules and weddings and so on so they can be part of the show which is amazing fantastic it must be a very special show for you though as well yeah it's been incredible it's been a life-changing show it feels like it altered my dna and um at the beginning of the journey it was about trying to find out my family's history and my homeland's history i'm sure heritage obviously but i grew up in australia and played a lot of cricket and drank a lot of beer and didn't know about my 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 family story and um this play was my way of trying to find that out and it really changed my understanding of who and what we are and my great-grandfather was very involved in the um the soul of 
you know, the battle for the soul of my homeland, and I had no idea about that, and learning about why my mother kind of held that from me. And, but now it's become a different thing. Now it's become a show that's gone around the world and it's finally coming to Melbourne, and um, it really helps um, heal people and, I think, invite people who don't know about um, our community into a different side of Australia's history and the kinds of histories that people hold inside their head when they come here. One of the things that struck me on seeing it was just how resonant and contemporary a story this is. Contemporary about kind of every Australian, because um, regardless of whether you were born here or migrated here, kind of so many Australians come from overseas at some point in their lives, whether it's First Fleet convicts or kind of um, a wave of uh, post-war immigration from from Europe after World War II or uh, uh, from Vietnam after the Vietnam War and so forth. So you don't have to be Sri Lankan for this story to resonate whatsoever. The thing that resonated with me was just... uh, it's, It's that beautiful thing about leaning into specificity... You make something specific and in doing so it becomes universal. When you try to tell something universal, it just just becomes a bland pudding. Yep, I completely agree. I mean, um, I had no idea how the story would be received when it first premiered in Sydney in 2019 and the way it was embraced by white Australians um, was just amazing and, uh, and just hilarious stories of like, a plumber coming over to an actor's house to fix their toilet and saying, oh, you were amazing in the show. I saw you know, saw you in last night. And, um, and I think one of the things that is really beautiful about this show is we all have families with secrets in them, you know, and we all fall in love with people we didn't expect to fall in love with. And um, we all have um, parents and grandparents that uh, we don't know as well as we would like to. And um, the... It's a wonderful thing to remember that about our own lives for a very, very specific story about a world you might not know about. Um, it's a way of coming together, I think. Now, uh, the production is, uh, as I said, is coming to Melbourne um, uh, and going to be at the Union Theatre at the University of Melbourne. Um, yeah. I believe you've described this as an opportunity to see the most intimate version of the play that's yeah. been staged today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, in Sydney, it was in the Sydney Town Hall. Um, and in uh, Edinburgh and Birmingham was in uh, bigger theatres. And um, being able to do it at the Union, I think, is kind of an extraordinary opportunity for Melbournians to see potentially the most potent version of the show because I think it's just being extraordinary there how, um, in a small theatre. And um, But that does also mean that if people are even vaguely interested in this, they should book tickets because I think it's likely to sell out. Um, and it's been many years before we've been able to bring it over. Um, so, yeah, no, yeah I... but I think it'll be extraordinary there. I think it will be, and uh, I also know that um, there have been attempts made previously to bring Counting and Cracking to Melbourne. Uh, I know Oz Asia Festival, um, sorry, uh, Asia Topa, um, getting my festivals confused, uh, Asia Topa were, were, were champing the bit to get it here but couldn't get the partners in a row to, to make it happen, yeah. for example. Um, yep. So I guess one of the things that I'm most looking forward to in terms of seeing it again uh, knowing as I do the the drama that will unfold, I, I will be observing that differently. But the community experience is something that I'm in- looking forward to. I don't want to go to opening night, for example, because that's usually full of industry people. I want to make sure I go to a regular performance so I'm sh- yep. surrounded by members not only uh, from the Sri Lankan diaspora, but other diasporas as well living in Melbourne to hear uh, and engage with and eavesdrop on and to, to listen to and see the way kind of 
other people engage with the show, not arts industry outsiders kind of like golf clapping at the end of each act or something like that. <laughs> yeah, i got to say that one of the um, really cool things about this show is um, the, that there's two shows that happen. One is the show that's happening on the stage and the other show um, is the journey you're going with the audience over the course of the night because it's an epic um, and there's two intervals, um, and the way you feel at the beginning versus the way you feel when you go at home at the end of the night really is vastly different. You know, we, we all go on this very, um, just, you know, uh, extraordinary multi-generational journey over the course of the show. And, um, it's been really fascinating for me when people talk to me about seeing the show, they tell me two stories, one of how they feel about the show and two of the friends they made along the way with the people they were sitting next to. And um, there'll also be a bunch of food options, um, trunk and food options um, and food trucks and so on uh, around that around the venue as well. And so there's meals and dessert to be had in between. And, yeah, I think that um, experience of watching with other communities is really important in this. And the Irish community, South African community, Middle Eastern communities um, all have very close-lived experience to what we went through in Sri Lanka. And um, that, that solidarity between the different groups have come here is a, a very important part of the show. Now, Shakti, I know you've been involved in kind of helping other people tell their stories in Sydney for, for a while, but am yeah. I right in thinking that Counting and Cracking was your first play? Yeah, yeah, it's my first play and the first time I um, turned the lens on myself and my own community, yeah. I've got to say, uh, kind of f- full credit to you to get, for going, right, I'm not going to, for my first play, I'm not going to do something small like a, a one-act <laughs> two-hander that can be put up in, uh, I don't know, the King's Cross Theatre or something like that. Kind of, let's do a three-and-a-half-hour epic. <laughs> I, um, uh, I grew up inside um, the small to medium sector and as a community artist. You know, I founded my own company and they're still going strong in Western Sydney and... Um, I, you know, it's it's a testament to the power of naivety and innocence, <laughs> Richard. I think um, I just um, didn't know about main stage theatre, and um, you know, obviously I was aware those companies existed, but um, I was on the streets of Western Sydney, and that's where I was working and living, and um, and that's where art was being created for me. And so, in terms of coming back to writing my first, do what we do, and you know. Our weddings go for a week and our temple festivals go for two weeks and um, uh, we have epic poems and epic songs and the Mahabharata is, you know, I think one of the longest or maybe the longest text in the world. And so our culture and history is uh, not afraid of long form. Um, and I'm glad that I was too innocent to know how difficult that would be <laughs> to put the show, make the show put on. Um, but it's really important, I think, um, because... We, the play has a philosophy about it, which is that, you know, it's more important to find people who disagree with each other and can deeply listen to each other than it is to decide who's right. Um, and, it, you know, you can't do that in a short play. Um, and this, if we want to really get at the heart of real people's lives at some of the most intractable issues in the world today, um, you know, around how to find justice or peace um, and nurture democracy or... Um, you know, marry or um, fall in love with the person you want to as opposed to who your parents want you to, um, you need to be able to hear all the points of view on that. And um, the, the play really tries hard to do that. And um, that's, that's what an epic does. It allows us to see that multiplicity and live in that glorious complexity. Yeah. Now, 
given the challenges of getting any new Australian player, how difficult was it yeah. to persuade the crew at Belvoir, uh, including Eamon Flack, the company's artistic director, who ended up directing Counting and Cracking yeah. with you as associate director, and he also has a credit as uh, as associate writer. Yeah. But how how much convincing did they take to say, kind of, um, no, if we stage this three-and-a-half-hour epic, people will come? I think full credit to Eamon. When he read the first draft that I wrote, he fell in love with the play, and he's been committed to it ever since then. Um, there's a middle scene in the play, which is about 30 or 40 minutes long, which is just the boisterousness of a Hindu um, wedding in a, in a, in a Sri Lankan front porch, and inside the boisterousness of all these people coming in and out, like it's like a, a Robert Altman film, it's, um, you know, two people kind of um, very subtly and slowly develop a courtship and declare their love to each other. And, you know, he loves that theatricality. But um, when Eamon and I decided to commit to it and do it at the scale it deserved, it then became a very, very long journey. Uh, it took 10 years from starting to research it before it got on stage. It took four years to cast it. Like I said, they're from six different countries. Um, and Belvoir would have gone under as a company if the Sydney season didn't go well. You know, they put everything on the line. Um, Sydney Festival, Adelaide Festival came on board. And it's a miracle of a show. Like, it's not a, um, it's not uh, supposed to be what happens, this show. <laughs> it's not business as usual. Um, and everyone comes and sees it and says it's incredible and then says it's too hard to do, you know. And um, credit to Rising and University of Melbourne to, to being up for the challenge of putting on a miracle. But that's one of the privileges what we get to do as artists is that we, you know, for a few weeks when the show's on, we get to make a miracle happen and it's real. Um, and it proves that seemingly impossible things can be done if, if um, different people come together and work together to make it happen. And speaking of the collaboration between uh, you and Eamon Flack from Belvoir, um, congratulations to the two of you because uh, you picked up the um, Victorian Premier's Drama Prize earlier this year for The Jungle and the Sea just a, a month ago. Yeah. Uh, well, what, three or four weeks ago? Three or four weeks ago, yeah. Thank you so much, man. And, um, yeah, it's a total honour. It's an absolute honour. And um, the County and Cracking won the Literature Prize back mm. in 2019. And... Um, I, I, I said to the Wheeler Centre that I associate them with the feeling of having a heart attack because <laughs> I don't expect to win these prizes. And then, um, yeah, it's, it just means so much um, for a play to win that prize, and it means so much. Um, you know, I don't think there's been many brown folk who won those prizes, and um, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a feeling of belonging, you know, when, it's, when a story gets to be embraced like that as part of the Australian story. Well, I'm hoping that at some stage we'll get to see The Jungle and the Sea, kind of your, your newer play. I was the uh, convening judge on the, uh, the the drama prize for the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards this year. So uh, it was a thrill to see uh, that that work get up, and I'd love to see it again. But to come back to... Oh, man, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. To come back to Counting and Cracking, though, um, one of the things that kind of fascinated me about it was um, how skillfully it's directed, moving from comedy to drama to kind of uh, moments that have the audience weeping. Um, it has such enormous heart. Uh, the the complex tapestry of Sri Lankan history, the, the stories of love and separation and, and reconciliation that are, that are involved. There is so much 
kind of contained within it, it it really does feel like a microcosm of the the world at large. That the audience surrender to this journey, and decades later, mm. and well, decades later in theory, but three and a half hours later in real time, walk <laughs> back out into the world. Uh, I would hope enraptured, enthralled, and perhaps changed as well. Yeah, I think um, that's that's really wonderful to hear you say that. And um, for me, it's about um, there's, you know, if you pass by a middle-aged woman at the bus stop or a dude kicking around, you know, football in the park, there's a universe inside their head, you know. Um, and uh, the the play ends on a very simple act, which I'm not going to give away. Um, but in that, that simple act, which is um, a family meeting, um, there's, there's what it takes for some people, for some families to finally meet is actually um, decades of persistence and cheekiness and sexiness and foolishness and, you know, tragedy and love um, for that moment to happen. Um, and I think we can't understand that as humans when we're just hanging out together and talking over dinner or having a drink at the pub. Like, it's only stories that allow us to really kind of take a step back and understand the magic that's occurred to, to, for, for us together, you know, in a particular space at a particular time. And um, it's been a real privilege to be able to pour my heart into showing that magic that allows that family to meet again um, after that three and a half hours. And, um, and, and hopefully it allows people to, um, to remember that and hold it in their, their heads and their hearts as they, they walk past strangers on the streets of Melbourne, you know, after the show. Shakti, a final question for you. Uh, given at the start of the interview you talked about the um, use the writing of this play as a way to learn about your family, about your family's history, about mm. Sh- Sri Lanka and more, um, I, and also given that you talked about kind of playing cricket, drinking beer, how much of you is there in the character of Siddhartha, our kind of young protagonist at the start of the play, who we see going to the beach and, and knocking around with his mates and so forth? Because the, the cliche is that the first novel, the first play is often semi-autobiographical. Um, how much of you is in that character as opposed to how much of you is in the play as a whole? Because it feels like the play as a whole is a love letter from you to your community. Yeah, I think it is a love letter for me to my community. And a, a true love letter in the sense of um, um, as celebratory as it is challenging. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think um, the, you know, the story of a young man who um, loves his mum and his mum loves him, but the way they show that to each other is by almost constantly arguing. It's very true to my life experience. <laughs> um, and my mum, uh, you know, wouldn't talk about Sri Lanka growing up while I was growing up. And, you know, that similar tree life um, that Siddhartha goes through is also very true to my experience. And um, the journey I've been on um, in terms of finding out about my family history and in particular my great-grandfather, um, is uh, also very true to my own life and what's in the play. And, you know, my great-grandfather was a politician who the arc of his life um, mirrored closely the arc of my community, Sri Lanka. And um, the story is a... County Cracking is a story of one family at the same time as the story of a nation. Um, but I think the, the, the deeper answer to that is really fascinating, which is that the play has changed my real life as much as real life has inspired the play, because... The first draft of the play 
I sent it to my mum, who was um, previously to that first draft, telling me this is a really stupid idea and not to do it. Um, and she changed after that. Um, and she started to open up and talk about Sri Lanka for the first time. And what she said to me um, went straight into the play and, in fact, is part of its closing moments. Um, and so, you know, there's this incredible relationship between the real world and the play, which is that there are things that have happened in the real world in terms of my family reconciling that wouldn't have been possible without the play. Um, and so it goes both ways. You know, I think a lot of the play um, mirrors my life and, and is wider than that. Every detail in the play is, is true to someone's life in my community. Um, it's a mosaic, it's a fictional mosaic of real details. Um, but also, equally, the play has changed real life and has changed the lives of thousands of people who've seen it, actually, in a way that um, keeps coming back and changing the play. Well, I very much look forward to seeing it again. The play is Counting and Cracking, being presented as part of Rising in uh, from the 31st of May until the 23rd of June, an extended season uh, at the Union Theatre, the newly redeveloped, I understand, Union mm. Theatre at the University of Melbourne, with the University of Melbourne's uh, kind of uh, campus kind of uh, being involved with the presentation of the work as well. Um, so counting and cracking, 31st of May to the 23rd of June, Union Theatre, University of Melbourne at the Parkville campus. Go uh, campus, go to rising.melbourne for more information. And uh, trust me, this is not a play to miss. Shakti, it's been such a pleasure talking to you on the program this morning. Thanks for joining us. Total pleasure, Richard. Thank you. We can't share this yet. We can't wait to share the story with you. Looking forward to it. Triple R. You're tuned to Triple R. Richard Watts with you here on Smart Arts, my first show back after a few weeks off. Lovely to be back. And uh, again, some lovely messages coming through in the text line. Uh, so, Susanna, yes, the darkness has passed. Major bout of depression three weeks ago, but that cleared up. And as I said, First time I've suffered significant depression for two months, so my depressive episodes are getting fewer and further between, which can only be a good thing. And then, of course, I came down with some horrible racking cough that made me vomit because I was coughing so violently, which is why I got tested for whooping cough. All negative, apparently. Uh, and also a text from somebody saying they missed the name of the play I was just chatting about with Shakti. Um, the play is called Counting and Cracking. Uh, Go to rising.melbourne for more information about it. It's an unmissable piece of epic Australian theatre. We're now going to change the conversation, though. So far, we have talked about... Um, uh, oh, we've talked about two different theatre productions. We were going to talk about some contemporary Irish uh, folk rock, but um, that's been rescheduled. Stuff happens. Uh, but now, time for us to talk about a different form of music. When We Were Young is a free concert presented by Melbourne Symphony Orchestra at Sydney Meyer Music Bowl. It's happening uh, this Saturday, the 24th of February at 7.30pm. Doors open at 5.30pm and entry is on a first-come, first-served basis. So uh, what intrigues me particularly about this concert is that its focus is instead of the uh, the traditional classic canon that may put some people off classical music. Um, it's a focus on kind of new young composers and their works. It's conducted by Carlo Antonioli, who joins me in the studio now. Carlo, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Richard. Great to be here. 
So in terms of new music, how do you, one of the, the terms I sometimes struggle with in these conversations is I go, do I call it new classical music? Is it, how can it be classical if it's new? Is it new orchestral music? Um, is it just contemporary composition? How do you describe this particular area of your art form? I think all of those terms are totally, totally applicable. Uh, the slightly pretentious term that we like to use is um, art music, new art music. But I think new music is is fine. Um, anything simply to, to make it clear that this is new. It's by living, breathing composers. That's the most important thing for us, something to uh, dispel the notion that as orchestras we only play music written by composers who are You've been long dead for dead. a couple of hundred years. Absolutely, yeah. yes. So who are some of the composers, the, the living, breathing composers whose work is being performed in this concert? So very excitingly, we've got works by two young composers, uh, Naomi Dodd and Alex Turley, both of whom uh, are or have been um, the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra's Cybeck Young Composer in Residence. So Naomi Dodd is this year's Young Composer in Residence, and her work is part of the three commissions that she's being um, asked to write for the orchestra. And Alex Turley was our Young Composer in Residence in 2022. And this is a work that was written as part of those three works that was commissioned for him, but has been slightly delayed in its performance. So it's great to be able to have both of those works um, in this concert. In addition to that, we've got a work by the something of an Australian legend of a composer, Matthew Heinsohn, who's very prolific. And his flute concerto, House Music, is being performed by the amazing Eliza Shepherd, who was the young performer... Uh, ABC Young Performer Award recipient in 2022. In terms of the the musical kind of palette and tone that they're working with, tell us what audiences can expect to hear. Yeah, so there's interestingly a a very broad range of uh, inspiration and sound worlds that they draw upon. Um, Naomi's work, I've been lucky to work uh, with all three composers before and and particularly with uh, Naomi and Alex at the MSO before. Naomi's work has a great sense of beauty and wonder. Uh, her piece is called Cerulean Dances and it's based on the sort of natural beauty of, of Australia. Uh, Alex's work tends to be quite uh, rhythmically driven and and he has a lot of experience also working uh, in crossover and working with uh, pop artists um, and doing arrangements for orchestra of, of um, popular music. And so... I think his work is really going to uh, connect with young listeners. And then uh, Matthew Heinsohn's work, Matthew has also a, a bit of a, a style, I suppose, where he connects with, with popular music. And so his, his piece is called House Music. And in some ways, it's a bit of a, a pun, the title. So each, each section of the, the work is referring to different sections of the house. So there's bits that are painting pictures of the kitchen and there's a swimming pool. Um, but at the same time, it is it does draw on some techno influence as well. So there's definitely a, a modern sound palette as well as a more traditional orchestral one. Now, you're conducting uh, this concert when we were young on Saturday. Um, for you as a, as a conductor, but also for the members of the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra who are performing, what's... How much freedom versus how much challenge is there in playing new music? Because if it's a, a, a piece that's been around for centuries that you're so familiar with, the challenge there is to bring new light, new shade, new life to the work. Here, what are the challenges with kind of um, conducting new music or playing new music? 
That's a great question. And um, you're absolutely right. With with the pre-established repertoire, I should also mention, in addition to those three works, we are playing one more work, Sibelius's Fifth Symphony, which is one of the more established works of the canon. And when you're approaching a work like that, um, the orchestra is going to know the piece already. They're going to have an understanding of what a standard interpretation of that piece is. And as a conductor, I suppose you're coming in um, and grappling with the body of interpretation that exists before you and saying, what do I want to say? How do I put my stamp on this? With new works, it's, it's yeah, absolutely a different challenge. Usually there's no, unless the composer's uh, given uh, the conductor a, a sort of audio MIDI mock-up or demo, there's no recordings to listen to. So there's no um, way of quickly understanding and interpreting that work without having to pore over the score and look over every detail because the, the notes haven't been played before. Um, for the musicians, it's a question of as quickly as possible trying to get all of that new information in their heads and try and figure out how the piece goes. And um, luckily, we had a rehearsal on Monday and we have more rehearsals tomorrow. And so um, the orchestra is already fully on board with, with those works and really excited to play them on Saturday. When I speak to uh, theatre directors, for example, about a, a new text, um, one of the things that's exciting is sometimes working directly with the playwright to, uh, to, to massage, to modify the playwright sitting in the rehearsal room to go, actually, that line just doesn't land the way I, it did in my head. Let me rewrite it for you. Um, is there a similar opportunity with orchestras, conductors and composers to similarly, to, I guess, to workshop a new work together? Absolutely. Yep. And tomorrow we're going to have all of our composers actually in the rehearsal room. And so we'll get the opportunity to do just that. But yeah, it's, there's nothing quite like actually being able to go to the source and say, what do you think about this bit? What does this bit mean? I have this idea for this bit. Do you like that? Um, Unfortunately, we can't uh, call up or email Beethoven and Mozart nowadays. Um, which oh, actually, I, I don't know. I'm, I was just thinking, can like uh, break out the Ouija board? <laughs> exactly. Well, actually, in some ways, that that um, that's a convenient way for us to put our own interpretation on things and not need their permission um, to, to get away with our own ideas. But yeah, there's nothing quite like working with composers who are actually there in the room for them to be able to hear the music see the musicians in front of them. Um, It's a much more organic process, and I think that that will be palpable on Saturday. Now, Carlo, how long have you been conducting for? That's an interesting question. I started out working with uh, school groups when I grew up in Sydney, Um, and so probably I would say about 10 years, just over 10 years, I think, yeah. And how does one become a conductor? Because if you play an instrument in school, there's a progression, a clear progression and path ahead of you. You can go, okay, well, I've, I've learnt uh, flute in year nine. I will pursue this now because this is my passion as an instrument. Um, but, yeah, how does that work for a conductor? Because you, do you just pick up a baton in high school one day and start waving it around and go, oh, this feels natural? I could probably talk for about an hour on this, but um, I guess the short version is, there used to be a bit more back in the day, a bit more of a defined progression for conductors. Quite often they would come from uh, piano players who'd work in opera houses as repetiteurs, uh, as the sort of training pianists for the, the singers, um, and they would work their way up to becoming sort of assistant musical director of a production. And then when the, the main musical director is sick or something happens, they would step in and they'd gradually work their way up through that progression. Nowadays it's uh, 
much more mixed bag of different ways to get into conducting. So there are composers, for example, who would conduct their own works, um, certainly still piano players, um, but a lot more orchestral musicians who spend some time in the orchestra, see the person up the front waving the stick and going, I reckon I could do a better job of that, and then giving it a go. Um, For me, I was still in school, and actually I was a saxophone player, which is not traditionally an orchestral instrument, but... um, I think I grew interested in conducting all the way back in school and my school band director encouraged me into it. And so while I was studying saxophone at Sydney Conservatorium, I was also trying to find ways to pursue conducting. And I think more and more that became a niche that I wanted to scratch. I was interviewing uh, Benjamin Northey from the MSO uh, a couple of years ago now uh, about the art of conducting Um Specifically, I think it came up in the, the conversation about conducting the uh, the orchestra when they're performing a live score for a film. Um, but there was just a point in the conversation where, as interviews sometimes do, they go off on a detour. Um, and I asked about the physical vocabulary of a, of a conductor. Uh, and he told me that one of the challenges for an orchestra working with a new conductor is to read the body language of that conductor because every conductor conducts in a slightly different way they with different emphasis different gestures and that struck me as that quite literally blew my mind just thinking I've never thought about this before in terms of the art of conducting uh and because every dancer has a different dance style every musician has a slightly different kind of way of playing for example of breathing of fingering whatever it may be but to realize that an orchestra has to every time a new conductor comes in they have to go I think I know what that gesture means. Have I got it right? Talk to us about that, about working with an orchestra and and working with them so they can read what you your your body language, your your gestures, your emphasis to so they can bring out from the music what you're asking them to bring out. This is definitely one of the more fascinating facets of of the work that I do, um, because conducting is largely a non-verbal means of communication. Um, Obviously, in rehearsal, we have the opportunity to stop and talk about things, although musicians would prefer that to be kept to a minimum and for us to keep playing as much as possible. But in concert, you don't have that opportunity to to talk. And so you're right. uh, For visiting conductors, and the MSO most weeks will have a new visiting conductor every week. And so they'll need to grow accustomed to their vocabulary of physical gestures and the sort of the physical space that they occupy and things like that. Um, I'm lucky, I suppose, in that I've had a a bit of a relationship with the MSO. Uh, For the previous two years, I was their assistant conductor, so they've come to know me. Um, Even then, though, I would say that at the start of each week of rehearsing, there's probably a little bit of time, the first sort of 20 minutes, where we're going back to sort of, oh, yeah, that's right, that's how we work together. And um, But, yeah, it, it is a bit of a negotiation and it's um, it's something as well that conductors, I, th- I think especially nowadays, can't just sort of impose their will on the orchestra without being open to flexibility or to, to working in a sort of two-way street with the orchestra. And so there is definitely a, a vocabulary of physical gestures. So some conductors, I mean... Conductors come in all shapes and sizes, so obviously some conductors are bigger, shorter, all this kind of thing, Um, and so the way that they occupy the space is different, but also the response of each orchestra is slightly different, and so the way that an orchestra responds to a certain gesture would be different from orchestra to orchestra, even with the same conductor. And so, yeah, definitely the first little bit of a rehearsal is this getting to know each other, um, which sometimes can go disastrously wrong. I've seen that happen before. Um, that's a slight bit of risk, but when it works really well, that's an absolutely beautiful, sweet spot. 
Conrad to, uh, sorry, uh, Conrad, where did that come from? <laughs> Carlo, to come back to uh, when we were young, uh, happening uh, at the Sydney Maya Music Bowl this Saturday, you just mentioned that idea of getting to know each other. Um, will the audience have a chance to get to know the composers for these new works, the three new works you've mentioned that are being performed? Will, the, will they be making any introductory remarks, for example? Will you be doing that yourself? Absolutely. I think um, one of the beautiful things about this series of... So in addition to this Saturday, there's, you know, MSO puts on these series of free Sydney Maya concerts each year, uh, one of which happened last night and there's another one happening next Wednesday. Um, and what we love about doing this is that we get a whole audience that we normally don't get to see. Um, and what we want to do with these concerts as much as possible is break down the stuffy traditional boundaries of a concert hall. So... Um, we want to make sure that we foster a connection with the audience and especially when we've got new works like this, it's a perfect opportunity for us to actually have the composers themselves speak to the, the audience. And so, yes, you'll be hearing from um, all the composers, you'll be hearing from Eliza, the flute soloist, and you'll be hearing from myself um, because I think that's a really important part of of a concert like this. Yeah. Uh, and we should also mention that as part of the concert this Saturday, there'll be a curtain-raising event by Melbourne Youth Orchestras. Absolutely. I believe that's at 6pm, so make sure you get in nice and early. I believe the gates open at 5.30, so you'll want to get there nice and early to make sure you catch them in action. Also, bring a picnic rug, a picnic, uh, and settle in for what I'm sure will be a rather delightful evening. When We Were Young is a free concert uh, performed by Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, the MSO at Sydney Meyer Music Bowl. It's on this Saturday. And as Carlo said, yes, gates open at 5.30pm. Uh, the MSO starts performing at 7.30, but while people are waiting, then yes, a... Uh, uh, an opening event by the uh, Melbourne Youth Orchestras, which for any budding young musicians in the audience, a, a chance to see perhaps their peers performing and to, to, to go, oh, there really is a career path that I can follow. I could be playing with the MSO in another 10 years or something like that. That's a, uh, a bonus, I guess, to coming along to, the, to see the concert as well. Absolutely. And in fact, later in the year, I'm going to be doing a, a joint program with the Melbourne Youth Orchestras and Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. So that definitely is a big part of that progression. I've been chatting with uh, conductor Carlo Antonioli about when we were young. If you want to find out more about the concerts, uh, you don't have to book. You can just go to www.mso.com.au to learn more about when we were young, presented at the Sydney Maya Music Bowl this Saturday at 7.30pm. Gates open at 5.30. Carlo, thank you for coming in. Thanks so much, Richard. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. You're tuned to 3 Triple R, and it is my great delight to welcome Bruce Gladwin, the Artistic Director of Back to Back Theatre, on the phone. Bruce, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Richard. Now, you have, uh, I imagine, been celebrating a little along with the uh, amazing back-to-back -back ensemble uh, because back-to-back -back have won yet another international award. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, we've been, uh, it's been pretty joyous and celebratory here and uh, the actors are um, quite happy and uh, feeling pretty chuffed and quite honoured, really to um, pick up uh, what's called a golden lion uh, as a part of our presentation at the Venice Biennale, which will take place in late June, early July. So uh, 
the full title of the award is the Venice Biennale Golden Lion Award for Lifetime Achievement in Theatre. Now, that's a pretty kind of prestigious award. People may be familiar with the Venice Biennale's kind of visual arts awards, for example, but I suspect not many people know that other art forms are awarded Golden Lions as well. What does it mean Mm. for you and the company in terms of this sort of international recognition what does it what what does it say about the all the the hard yards and the the hard slog that it has been to run back to back over the years and to create provocative rich challenging beautiful work uh well look i think it's a real tribute to the actors uh who have been many of them been working in the ensemble for 15 or 16 years and um, really forging that collaborative relationship with each other and other guest artists that work with the company and they've really done the hard yards on the road um, touring. The company can be uh, on tour for up to about 20 weeks of the year Um, you know and we will perform here in our hometown of Geelong and obviously in Melbourne and other capital centres in Australia but also we're on the road a lot in Europe and North America and in some degree Asia and um, presenting the work at, you know, major festivals or presenters and really building audiences, um, not only in Australia, but ac- across, you know, the world. And um, uh, I, you know, I feel really proud of them that they've, they have the capacity to do that because, you know, I, I think it's, in some ways, it's easy to think it's an um, an easy task and it's quite a joyous task, which it is, but it's also quite quite hard. Um, and they've got great stamina and capacity for it. I think, obviously, with awards, there's a sense of recognition um, in, in terms of the quality of the work. And um, so it's not just work person-like qualities. It's really about, you know elevating the actors and the company in terms of the thinking around exploration of new theatrical form, um, bringing ideas to audiences that are kind of relevant and challenging and contemporary. Um, And, you know, just it's a total delight to have your work acknowledged in that way. Now, as you said, the um, award is kind of linked to the fact that you'll be performing in Venice later this year. You're also, I understand, Mm. performing um, in Geelong and you've got an upcoming season in Melbourne too. We've got a new work which is called Multiple Bad Things and that will have a short season at the Geelong Arts Centre uh, in April and then the company will take that work to Brussels for the Kunsten Festival and then back and doing a season at the Malthouse. Um, as a part of the Malthouse program, uh, yeah, in May. Not too long for us to wait to see it then. For people who uh, already know and love Back to Back's work, what kind of commonalities, what threads beyond the ensemble themselves will they see yeah. in this latest work? Yeah, OK, well, it's... it's, a, um, it's a, well, for me personally, it's a really... It's going to be great because I'm not directing this work and it's one of the um, first works really in the company since my tenure where we're having someone else directing the ensemble. Um, so I'm going to really have the pleasure of being an audience member with this one. And um, 
Uh, yeah, it's really the work will be defined by the ensemble. It's um, a really rich, um, you know, the company, I, I just have to totally reiterate this and emphasise, you know, the company doesn't make its work on its own and there's such a, a, an incredible um, suite of uh, collaborating artists who all work within the kind of independent and small to medium and... Um, theatre ecology of um, Victoria and Melbourne um, that really feed our work and there's some amazing designers and composers and artists working with us on this work. Um, and, uh, you know, um, I don't know, I'm, I'm really curious to see it. Uh, there's a lot of new voices feeding into the work and it'll be really um, a great concoction to see, you know, what, what the result will be. Do you think the reward, uh, the reward, sorry, the award um, will also then generate further international interest uh, in and programming of back-to-back? Because, I mean, other people who've won a Golden Lion Lifetime Award for Achievement in Theatre, we're talking directors like Castellucci, for example, who's not necessarily a household name outside of theatre world, but certainly it means that back-to-back are now kind of um, ensconced with some of the great theatre minds of uh, of recent decades. So surely that will then mean uh, an even more intense touring program for the company. Yeah, oh, well, I'm... Uh, well, I hope that it affords um, the company opportunities to keep doing what we're doing, essentially, which is hopefully, you know, our agenda is really to kind of keep taking theatrical risk um, and take time to develop the work um, and invest in the personnel. So if, if you know, if it can, we can tick all those boxes, I'd be very happy. Um, uh, if it affords us opportunities to play other... Um, with other new presenters and festivals, and that's that's a real um, great byproduct as well. For more information about Back to Back Theatre, including their upcoming Melbourne show at the Malthouse, backtobacktheatre.com. Um, and uh, Bruce Gladwin, Artistic Director, congratulations again, not just to you, but to all of the company, everybody behind the mm. scenes, uh, and especially to the ensemble. Please pass on my warmest regards and heartfelt congratulations to them in particular. Thanks, Richard. Always a pleasure to catch up, and uh, I look forward yeah. to perhaps speaking with you in May about the new show. Super. Ciao. Triple R. Uh, it is 12 minutes past 11am and I am delighted to be joined back in the studio in the flesh by regular theatre reviewer Anne-Marie Peard who has not caught up with me for ages because I've been sick. So. And then I was away and then I had COVID and it feels like it's been ages since we've been in here. It does. Well, because I haven't done the show for three weeks. I know. so. Possibly it's been four weeks since yeah. we caught up. Oh, more than that, because um, we did a phone at the last show of the year because I had COVID. Oh, that's right. So, you know, strangers. No, we're not at all. It's also mm. kind of scary to think that it's March tomorrow. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I don't think I needed to know that. I'm hoping that March will be the month I finally start to get back into the swing of going mm. back to the theatre. So, Because uh, I am flying to Adelaide Festival next Thursday oh, to see... Oh, I'm jealous. Can I, I think I'm seeing about five or six shows. Yeah. So, Yay. Yeah. So that will make up for not seeing anything while I've been sitting at home coughing so hard I vomit. Oh, goodness. 
However, I have seen a lot of shows to make up for it. You have. I've been following you on social media. (laughs) And And I apologise to all the shows I'm not going to have time to talk about. So please look at Sometimes Melbourne on Instagram and you'll at least see a smiling photo of me and an artist. And if you go on Instagram shortly, you'll see a smiling photo of her with a radio broadcaster. Yeah. Oh, there's a grumpy one as well. I might put both of them up. (laughs) (laughs) Please not the grumpy one. No, because we're never, ever grumpy. We're theatre critics. We're the loveliest people in the world. So, let's talk about what you've seen. Well, I'm going to start. Last night, I saw Cuddle at Arts House. Ah, the new dance duo. Yeah. Now, there was an artist talk after this, and I actually had that moment, oh, I'd like to try and understand this by going to the artist talk. And then I went, no, if I understand the artist's intent and all of that about this show, I might not have loved it as much as I did. Part of the experience sometimes of contemporary dance is just take from it what works for you. So I didn't go to the artist talk and I still absolutely loved it. So it's by Harrison Ritchie Jones and who dances with, apologies, Michaela Tanchev. So it's two people. I'm actually going to just read part of Harrison's artist statement because... They say it far better than I could. So, Cuddle uses humour and absurdity mixed with hardcore technique to strike a unique balance between not knowing when to laugh, feel scared and be moved. It's like, yep, I sure felt that. Michaela Tanchev and I dedicated ourselves to learning and mastering various forms of partner work. We learned moves from ice skaters, took classes in martial arts like jiu-jitsu and judo, practised contact improv, rodeo barnyard, Latin dance, wrestling and many more abstract references only to start to mix and blend them together to amalgamate movements and invent new forms of forms. So I've never seen choreography like this and I was sitting there going, what is going on? I'm recognising bits. Is it wrestling? Is it partner dance? Is it swing dance? Is it ice skating? What are you doing? And they have taken all of these things and combined it into something brand new. And physically, it is so intense and so precise that you're kind of scared, are they going to get through this? If one of them gets dropped, what's going to happen? But go back, I will say, I'll talk about the very beginning of this piece. So we're in the um, North Melbourne Town Hall. Some people are sitting on the floor, some are in chairs, some are standing up. We're around a square. Yeah, kind of, which is something that intrigued me. Yeah. Because could be a boxing ring, could be a wrestling ring, yeah. could be anything. And what we get is film. So there's screens on either side and we're in the back of a car and there's a camera there looking at these two bodies who are in balaclavas. They're huge and they've got red jackets and jeans. And, you know, we see the car, it's outside Arts House. And before they get out the car, they cuddle. And they have some wire cutters with their balaclavas and everything covering their faces and they don't stop cuddling. So they get out of the car, they wire cut, they get into um, Arts House, they roll up to the door, they get into the theatre and in this time they have never let go of this embrace. We don't know who these people are, what they are. They're both, you know, padded up underneath their clothes so we've got no idea. And then these squeaky noises start and you figure out, They're padded up with squeaky toys all underneath. It sounds as bizarre as it is. So a lot of the sound is their movement with this 
incredible dance and movement going on, the squeaky toys. And as the show goes on, you know, we see more of what's going on underneath and a lot more happens and, you know, the squeaky toys disappear and a lot more disappears. But you are continually intrigued as, I'm loving this, I'm fascinated by it. What you are doing is something I have not seen before in dance, which is now I know this combination of everything. And it's awesome. So that's on until Sunday. I highly recommend it. Don't try and understand it. There's a lot more that you could understand, read the artist statement and all of that. But, yeah. Sounds fabulous. It's fabulous. There's a, uh, mm. a tactile tour and audio mm. described performance tonight at 7.30pm. It's mm. also on Friday at 7.30, mm. Saturday at 7.30 yep. and Sunday at 5pm. That's Cuddle mm. at Arts House uh, at North Melbourne Town Hall. You might not like it, but my goodness, you! I still think you're going to really get something out of this. And it's this. only 45 minutes, so even if you don't I know. Like oh, it, I love that. Yeah. Yep. So What next? Oh, very quickly. Another one I really love that I'd love to get along to is um, Finnecane and Smith. We love Finnecane and Smith. They have a show called House of the Heart on for the next bit. I can't remember the exact dates. I'm sorry. I'm looking them up. Thank you very much. That's on at the Chinese Museum in Chinatown and Little Burke Street. Um, this is... A bit different from a normal Finnegan and Smith show where you're used to, you know, um, feminist burlesque. This is more, I don't say cabaret, but it's set in, um, it's in the Chinese Museum. So you're surrounded by the dragons and it's a lot about New Year because it's um, coming up to Year of the Dragon. Moira is well, a wood it, it dragon. Is. It is the Year of the Dragon. Moira is a wood dragon. So this show is so much about her. I'm an earth monkey. Um, I'm a goat or a sheep. Oh. I can't remember. <laughs> One or the other. They're both good animals. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, yes, I can't remember mm. whether I'm metal or fire mm. or whatever. Yeah, I had to look that one up. Um, a lot of regular singers and dancers are in this, and what they're doing is telling us stories about home and telling us stories about the heart. Some of them are sung, some of them are spoken. There's some amazing, there's an incredible belly dancer in this show. And... As with most Finnecane and Smith shows, I talk about them so much I just assume everyone knows about them. If you haven't seen a Finnecane and Smith show, this is one to come along to. You're going to leave feeling better about life. You're going to feel with your heart, leave with your heart feeling a bit warm. House of the Heart mm. is on until the 10th of March. Mm. Oh, uh, quite a while. Uh, at mm. the uh, Chinese Museum in the heart of Chinatown yeah. in Melbourne. Um, you can go to f- uh, smith.com. That's F-I-N-U-C-A-N-E, com for more info. Yeah. Another thing really lovely about this company is they make sure that if you haven't got the money to pay the full price ticket there are always $20 tickets available for artists and if you don't have the money just send them a message and they will make sure that you get in to see this show. Now some of the other uh, artists in working mm. on the show mm. we should just acknowledge First Nations jazz blues artist oh, uh, Lois. Lois Olney. I, if you, oh, you know when you hear someone sing and your body just goes wow that's Lois. Um, there's a, a joy embodied mm-hmm. dancer, Paul uh, Cadelro. Oh, he also does a piece about growing up and his home story. So we see Paul not dancing for once, which is also lovely. Yorta Yorta and Wiradjuri artist uh, Glennis Briggs, singer-songwriter mm-hmm. Ian mm-hmm. Muir. The belly dancer mm-hmm. you mentioned is Araksha 
Pasnani uh, and an 88-year-old performer, uh, Shirley... Shirley Catanart. Uh, yeah. Now, not everyone is on every night, so, no. yeah, you might have to go a couple of times. I mean, it's interesting mm. that they bill uh, Mama Alto, for example, as a guest star. Yes, well, she's just... She's just literally on the way back from performing from New York. New York. Yeah. I know. It's awesome. There's so many amazing things happening. So that's House of the Heart on at the Chinese Museum. Yep. The yeah. other one I really like that's on at the moment, and then I'm going to talk about a couple I didn't like so much, um, but Meet Me at Dawn is um, MTC, Melbourne Theatre Company, show that's on at the Fairfax Theatre at the moment. This is a two-hander. It's performed by Jing Shan Chan and Sheridan Harbridge. Um, it's a play by a UK writer called Zinni Harris. It was first seen, I think, at the Edinburgh Fringe in 2017. Um, I want to actually talk about the direction. This is Katie Maudlin. Um, she's not an emerging director. She's at that, you know, she's on a main stage now. But every time I've seen Katie direct something, I've gone, who directed this? I'm fascinating, fascinated by her. She did um, IFAS for Lyric Opera a few years ago. Oh, yes. Just, yeah, made it opera works. just come to life and concentrates on story and character and you think that sounds that's what you're meant to do but some people do it far better she also directed slap bang kiss for mtc's education program that was incredibly successful i love that but meet me at dawn is a story of it's a couple there how it begins they've washed up on a beach somewhere and they've survived a boat accident and they're alive and you know there's possible concussion and all of that and they're joking now wondering how do they get back to their car but you sort of realize something's not right here how are they on an island how can they see the coast who's this strange woman who's not on stage but they can see who's not helping them what, why are things happening? And so, you know, there's a lot of mystery in this and I don't want to give the mystery away. It is a work about grief. It's a work that plunges you into that sort of liminal world of grief where grief is all there is and you can't explain it, you can't function and you go through this what if, what if, what if, what if, what if. So, you know, we've got an idea of what's happening there. Um, but what I really liked about the direction of this is there's, it's a play that's got a lot of mystery in it. But as an audience, we discover what's going on as the characters discover what's going on. So we're not ahead of them and we're not behind them. And that just brings us so into their experience so much more. So, um, yep, MTC show, Meet Me at Dawn, that's running till the 16th of March. And is on uh, in the Fairfax studio yeah. at Art Centre Melbourne. So nice and intimate, beautiful performances by the two actors. They are so, so different in how they perform and that makes it just wonderful. You feel like they're a couple. And, and the risk mm. of that is that... Sometimes it can feel like they're acting in completely different shows yeah. and that can grate, but it mm. sounds like from everything you've said that mm. Katie Maudlin's direction can mm. go, let's kind of unite these separate styles. And um, they're so separate styles. So they fold into yeah. each other rather than conflicting with each other. They're like a couple who, you know, are so different. That's that, you know, difference attracts sometimes. And, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Some people haven't, but... I really did. Sounds great. On yeah. until the 16th of mm. March, um, uh, presented by MTC. Go to mtc.com.au for details. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. 
If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Now, there's also a couple big musicals on at the moment. Um, one that opened last night, night before, was Rent. Now, that's on at the State Theatre Company. This is a production that's had um, a smaller season run in Sydney then it moved on to a bigger stage. And it's on a massive stage at the State Theatre. Um, you know, the theatre that oh, does not do music well. You can't hear the lyrics properly. Just It's not a venue designed for music, even though we have opera there, we have musicals there. But that's a whole other conversation. Now, it's massive standing ovations, people cheering. The, every single performer in this show is stunning. Like, there were some beautiful, beautiful performances. I cannot fault the performances. And I think if this was a concert version, I probably would have been raving about it. But I spent the whole night going, why does this show not work anymore? And Rent, as a piece of music theatre... Okay, it went to Broadway, it ran a Pulitzer, it won Best Things in the Best Things, it won a Tony Award, the Things, the Things Awards um, in the 90s. However, if you don't know the story of Rent, um, it's by a writer called Jonathan Larson. He wrote Tick, Tick, Boom and he wrote Rent and just before Rent opened on off-Broadway, he suffered, um, it was a heart condition and he died. It's heartbreaking oh goodness I can't believe I went that it's yeah his heart broke um awful awful story amazing young man who probably would have gone on to create some incredible musicals um they never lived to see the success of Rent so what tends to happen in music theatre is when shows open off Broadway they become successful they move on but they what get workshop. they get worked I'm thinking of shows like Next to Normal that from compared to their off-Broadway to their Broadway, the changes in this show. This show has just kind of got stuck as half a memorial, half goodness knows what, but it hasn't changed. So it wasn't ready. It's a lot of very complex story. It's all stuck together. You don't know what character you're wanting to follow. You're confused by plot it's thematically and musically you can see him beginning to get all those musical themes in that make it a whole piece rather than a selection of songs but that didn't happen because we're still stuck with what that piece was the other thing that I found with this production and I do find with a lot of contemporary productions of Rent okay this was a story so 93 94 I think it was first seen it's an AIDS story. He wrote this piece because his friends in New York, it's set in New York, were, were dying of AIDS. And it's got a lot of gravitas in it. There is one death in the show and there are other characters with AIDS. And uh, I was just reading the original production or the original work of it as pretty much all of the characters in this had caught AIDS through however means it doesn't matter. So... What held this piece together for the audiences, particularly in the 90s, was knowing that all these young, amazing people who were watching on the stage and watching their lives are going to die. And watching it back from now, we know, yeah, they didn't make it properly. Some of them might have, some of them might not have. So what's missing from this production was that depth, that heaviness that says this is actually a sad story. 
even though there's so much positivity and so much love in it and you know some amazing music in it incredible performances but we're missing that depth that says this was a time where young people particularly were dying painfully and horribly and they were being attacked for how they caught their illness so for an AIDS piece I would have liked to see a bit more in it um, and we're comparing that to a show finished a couple of weeks ago called Inheritance that was on at 45 Downstairs that was also set at that time and my first reaction was, oh, goodness, you're all too young, you weren't there. And then I kept watching this and going, yeah, you really understand this and there's this incredible line in Inheritance that um, a man who's middle-aged by this stage, someone's you know, accusing him, OK, they're a right-wing weird person... <laughs> Um, and they just said something about you as a gay man and he just looks at them and says, there are no gay men my age. And it just goes, yep, yeah, this is what this play's about. So so the inheritance yeah. captured that, rent yeah. does not. I think we might see the inheritance again. I really hope we I do hope it so, sold I out. It, yeah, I really um, it. Mm. Now, uh, yes, certainly the, there have mm. been some mixed reviews. <laughs> oh, has um, there ever. Uh, For rent, I haven't read the age review yet, <laughs> but I um, did enjoy the Guardian review by our mutual friend and colleague, our Tim Byrne. Friend, Tim. Um, who does not hold back. No, he does not uh, he hold back. He did not like this production. <laughs> he gave it two stars. <laughs> Um, I uh, can assure you I saw Tim after the show and I think he was generous in his review <laughs> compared to his actual opinion. I wasn't. I said I didn't dislike it. I found a lot more in it than he did. There's a, a wonderful mm. paragraph that I mm. want to read. and We're going to have to wrap up yeah. in a sec because uh, my next guests are out mm. in the green room. But um, more disturbing is Larson's relationship with tragedy, marginalisation and mm. victimhood. Despite many of the characters in Rent suffering from HIV, it is only the black trans character Angel, played with vibrancy and charm by Carl Devilla, who dies, a kind of eulogised sacrificial lamb. Mm. One small but telling scene has a homeless woman castigating Mark, the protagonist, uh, for filming her. It's a remonstration against Larson's tendency to appropriate human suffering mm. for his own self-aggrandisement. But it goes nowhere and is never mentioned again. It reads less like self-admonishment and more like a Freudian slip. <laughs> so, yeah, honestly, I think if that show had had the opportunity to really develop, it would have been... But it's yeah. won a Pulitzer Prize. People love it. But this is the thing. Yeah. Kind of like, did it win a Pulitzer Prize because it was great or because of the myth? The myth. And the tragedy mm. of it being written by an artist who never got to see it yeah. finished. Who died. And, yeah. you know, has that beautiful song about how many minutes you count in the year that we all love. Um, yeah. Anyway, look, we should wrap. don't not see it. And I was going to say, just read Tim's review of Groundhog Day as well, if you're thinking whether you should see Groundhog Day, except I liked it much more than Tim again. Uh, Rent the Musical is showing mm. until the 7th of March at the State mm. Theatre at Art Centre Melbourne. Anne-Marie, thanks for coming in. Thank you. Good to see you again. You too. Love to see you. And I can't wait to hear about the, your Adelaide Festival experience. I look forward to sharing that with you in a fortnight's time. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Something else that it sounds like it would be fun to get along to is Not Natural, um, which whenever every time I announce that, I kind of want to take on some kind of Mr. Byrne-style <laughs> voice and kind of, like, wiggle my fingers in a certain way and uh, either that or pretend I'm some kind of 
rampant homophobe just to get the intonation right. Not natural. <laughs> anyway, it's an exhibition at Science Gallery at the University of Melbourne exploring the growing friction between what we consider natural and what we consider artificial, um, which is a topic that I have long loved because when people say, oh, but that's not natural, I go, well, neither is wearing polyester and... Look at it. But uh, for that matter, flying in aeroplanes and glasses. So, uh, yes, if you've got a problem with things not being natural, go and live in a cave naked, please. Uh, I'm joined in the studio by co-curators Tilly Berlin and Bern Hall, who are going to chat about all things unnatural and natural with me now. And a very good morning to you both. Good morning. We are delighted to be here. Yeah, lovely to be here. Thanks, Richard. So, Tilly, let's start with you. Mm. The... the, Where the... Tell us about the the concept, the seed. Yeah, absolutely. So it's really an exhibition that's all about asking questions uh, and inviting people to come in. And just like you say, humans have been manipulating and changing the world around us for a really long time. But now, like uh, what we are, what's able to be done is is rushing along in leaps and bounds. And what the exhibition is about asking is just because we can, should we? And really asking our audience to figure out how they feel about the questions that are raised and where they sit on the spectrum of whether it's okay or not. That notion of should we just because we can is something that instantly springs to mind when I think about one of the works in the exhibition burn, which is the uh, thylacine de-extinction, which A, is something I think dear to many Australians' hearts, that notion of going, oh, we killed the thylacine, could we bring it back? But the question is, again, should we? Um, So talk to us about this work and the artist who's created it, because it's it's an interactive work, I understand, that the audience actually... Yes, it's very interactive. We have a um, survey in the gallery, so as Tilly said, this exhibition, Not Natural, I say with my Mr Byrne fingers, (laughs) um, is all about um, questions and, yeah, just having kind of teasing out audiences' opinions. So in this thylacine de-extinction project, so if anyone who doesn't know, the thylacine is the Tasmanian tiger, another name for the Tasmanian tiger, and... um, it's a beautiful animal that we drove to extinction um, in Tasmania. And we have this incredible project exploring um, because at the university we have the Thylacine Integrated Genetic Restoration Research Lab headed up by one amazing professor, Andrew Pask. Um, and in their research, um, part of their broad overarching goal is to de-extinct the Tassie tiger. And this is obviously a very controversial topic. Um, there's a broad range of opinions on this on this topic. It seems kind of fantastical, the idea of seeing an animal again that's been extinct now for or, you know, coming up to 100 years soon. So, um, yes, we have this beautiful space in gallery and he's collaborated with an incredible um, contemporary artist from Tasmania, Emma Bug, who's made a um, locket in memorial to the thylacine. So as you enter the space, you encounter um, artefacts from the university collection, Emma's beautiful locket, um, and a whole spectrum of opinions from people from the research lab, but then also all kinds of people. We've got young people, um, other people in the science gallery network, all kinds. First Nations people, First Nations people, all really stepping into that really uncomfortable space of saying, you know, why, whether you think if whether you're pro or against or unsure, and what the really important part is, what are your reasons? Mm-hmm. And both Emma, the artist, and Andy, the researcher, are really interested in what people's reasons are, um, and yeah, and that that. N- as with humanity, like the fact that you feel one way right now, after you listen to other people's perspectives, that might shift 
Mm. one way or the other along the dial. It's not going to happen on Twitter very quickly, but (laughs) hopefully in real life. No, we really wanted to encourage a space where people felt open to sharing their opinion, um, no no matter what that may be. And as Tilly said, feel free to have an opinion um, at the start of the show and then come back and, you know, after you've heard other different thoughts and concerns or, um, you know, excitement, change your opinion throughout. It's one of those things that um, when you when I hear people saying, "Oh, yeah, we'll we'll use the DNA from this animal," and and kind of, I'm like, but a then is it act- are you actually bringing an extinct animal back because you've spliced its genes with something else? It's no longer the original animal, um, and I think kind of like, and then it's like, oh look, we've got mammoth DNA kind of from a uh, a snap frozen baby mammoth from the let's bring it back, and I'm like. How would it feel to be the only mammoth in the world, for yeah. example? It's certainly got some Jurassic Park vibes mm. as well, <laughs> let me tell you. But um, Professor Andy Paskey is one of the best science communicators I've ever met in my life. And he really does have a considered and thoughtful response to lots of these things. But, you know, there are comments and opinions that even that made him pause, even though this is a lifelong goal of him and his incredible team. And that one of those was um, brought up by someone in the gallery about does this remove our you know concept of consequence that as humans it does it remove the fact that when we make these decisions and impact the world around us and continually try and separate ourselves artificially from being in nature that we are part of this entire mm-hmm. ecosystem does that does our ability to right those wrongs in one way or another shift how we feel about our impact on the world quick question for both of you do either of you know the aboriginal name for the thylacine Oh, no. Uh, I'm going to try and pronounce this right. Um, Caperunia. Oh. Uh, no, hold on. Uh, Caperunina. Uh, that was just texted in from a triple R. Oh, nice. Amazing. So, yeah. Excellent. I'm sure there were many different names from the different language groups as yes. well because yeah. it was a creature that well, existed it used to live in the mainland, on the mainland as yeah. well and yeah, I mean, in Tasmania. I know the kind of uh, – and we will talk about some of the other exhibits in a moment, I promise. But yeah. I do like thylacines. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, I know that uh, a, a well-preserved specimen was found mummified kind of in the Nullarbor Plains, for example. Mm. My mum swears blind that she saw one in Gippsland at oh. one point. So, yeah, uh, in the early 70s. So who knows? Um, but the thylacine de-extinction project is just one element of the exhibition, not natural. Um, there's uh, When we think about artists exploring the, the, the line between kind of uh, the natural world and an environment and the world of artificial and the man-made, there is one uh, Australian artist who I think springs to mind for a lot of people, Patricia Piccinini, mm-hmm. and I know there's a work of hers in the exhibition as well. Yes, we've got The Beautiful Kindred uh, by Patricia Piccinini in the show. So for those who haven't seen Kindred, it's a beautiful work of an um, orangutan hybrid human mother um, and she's holding her two children and the two two children especially look very human. Um, And as with all of Patricia's work, which is so beautiful and it was something when we were um, planning the show Not Natural, we just knew that her work resonates so strongly um, and we're so lucky to have one of her incredible projects in the show. Um, but in this project, uh, all her work kind of drives that um, idea of how we connect to nature and is it kind of a false separation we put between humans and nature. It's a very kind of Western idea to um, 
yeah, put that separation in and say that humans are kind of above it all and controlling everything. And so Patricia's work really draws you in with that very human element, but then you're connecting to nature directly through this clearly an orangutan kind of creature and thinking about habitat destruction, how we impact the environment, all those things. The, uh, the notion of humanity being somehow separate or outside or mm. in control of nature, mm. we've clearly seen uh, with uh, the increase in floods and extreme weather and bushfires and so forth. It's just, whoever still thinks that, go and you're living in a fantasy. But um, <laughs> on a different note, that notion of, of nature and mm. whether we work with it, work against it, care for it, ignore it. One of the works in the exhibition I know is asking the question of, do we only care about nature if it's human-like? Do we just ignore it if it's not? Uh, and this is what a, a philodendron with a machete that can fight back. Yeah, so David Bowen, <laughs> um, work plant machete, he really wanted this work because... The machete is a weapon that is used against from humans against plants the world over of clearing. Um, and in this piece, David really wanted to put tongue in cheek and beer and, and to be able to give some agency and protection back to the plant. So the plant is has a bunch of um, EEG uh, sensors on its leaves and then it is connected to a robot arm that is just keeping humans at bay. David wanted to be really clear it wasn't condoning violence of any kind. It is just giving some agency and and some space, giving this philodendron um, that can gently weave the machete around just to keep visitors very much out of its way. I was and say, you wouldn't want to get too close. No, and I mean, you know, I also wouldn't want to give that power to some of my house plants uh, <laughs> that sometimes you killed our brothers and sisters. <laughs> yeah, they'd be out for revenge at my house. Oh dear. But um but but the the piece itself is incredibly safe. You're kept at a distance as well by these beautiful barriers within the gallery and you can stand back and watch this philodendron, you know, just taking a stand and keeping us just at arm's reach. Now, I mentioned Twitter a moment ago. Anybody who uses Twitter or X, as it is now called, or uh, TwitX or, uh, or Zitter, which I think is pronounced shitter, um, uh, would be familiar with the notion of spam bots. Mm. Uh, and, uh, yes, your Twitter feed gets flooded by, I don't know, uh, troll farms in Russia and all over the world. But... Here, the notion of spam bots has been taken to a new level, thanks to the artist Neil Mendoza, um, allowing spam to communicate. Like yes. Tin, tins of spam. Uh, tins of spam. That talk? It kind of has to be seen to be believed. Um, I'm going to try and describe it as I best that I can. But as you come into the gallery, you turn a corner and you might notice eight little cans of spam, the exact same kinds that you would find at your supermarket, um, with little Furby eyes. All different colours, I might add, um, and little robot arms. And each spam bot has four keys and they're slowly typing out um, a kind of script that's on screen. And Neil Mendoza is an amazing uh, artist who's always looking at these kind of absurd ways to draw attention to things that he's interested in. And um, the inspiration for this piece came around with this idea of um, he really wanted to draw attention to this industrial farm practice and the idea that animals are kind of industrial farm animals are born into a fate that's predetermined and it's a very um, human use um, and so in kind of thinking about that he saw resonances with a book Brave New World by Aldous Huxley a sci-fi novel and in that book um, characters in the novel are born into a fate 
So um, he took the text of the book and then fed it to an AI and asked it to pigify the text to make his porcine prose, as he calls it. Um, and so you see a very strange text that they're typing on screen with lots of piggy words like grunts and oinks and um, all kinds of things. And they're slowly typing away. And in a way, that's the spam generating more spam using AI. <laughs> The world is getting stranger by the day, I have to see. Animatronic luncheon meat, ladies and gentlemen. But one of the things I love about all of these works is, yes, there's a degree of humour at yeah. play mm. here, but they're also very deeply serious. They're asking ph philosophical questions, important questions about the place of humanity in the world and our responsibility as an apex predator that is changing the planet to preserving and supporting the rest of the planet and to making sure that nature doesn't die on our watch. That is absolutely spot on. And something that at Science Gallery, um, because we're focused on trying to bring in and grab the attention of 15 to 30-year-olds, everyone else is welcome, but that's a group of humans we're trying to pull in the door and um, give them opportunity to shift maybe the way that they think about themselves, their career, the possibilities of the future. And we find that absolutely like disruptive communication by um, humour or disgust is an excellent way in to like have someone go <gasps> and then start to think about it. Mm. It's a way to break through um, and one that, uh, yeah, we really hope that our audiences enjoy. Now, there are other works in the exhibition at Science Gallery at the University of Melbourne, Not Natural, which are asking questions about environment and its impact on DNA, for example, which I think for anybody who has had a family member who's been exposed to asbestos or silica or has worked as a um, uh, in the fire services and been exposed to toxic chemicals uh, or who just lives next to a really busy road and is mm. worried about what they're breathing in every day. Kind of, again, a significant topic that has ra real life ramifications for all of us far beyond kind of an abstract abstracted artistic idea as well, which again is the, the, the fact that these works are communicating on so many levels simultaneously, again, makes Not Natural sound like a really rich and fascinating exhibition. Thank you. We Thanks agree. So we, we love agree. it. <laughs> we love it so much. Now, the exhibition opened on the 17th of Feb uh, and is on now until the 29th of June. Yeah. Um, are there any kind of particular upcoming key events, artist talks, kind of any of those kind of public programs that you wanted to discuss? Yeah, absolutely. We have this awesome thing called Friday Night Socials where uh, once a month the gallery opens until late at night, like lots of awesome cultural institutions, and there is the whole gallery is alive and active with particular performances. We often get student groups from the university coming in to do performances. It's a real fun time and it's always free. For more information about Science Gallery at the University of Melbourne, go to melbourne.sciencegallery.com. There you'll find out all the details about Not Natural and uh, associated events. And if you've not been to Science Gallery before, its uh, its official street address is 114 Grattan Street, Parkville, isn't it? So yes. it's what, the corner of Grattan Street and, and Swanson, Swanson Street. Yeah. So you can e easily get the tram there. Or if you feel like a, a brisk walk, stroll up from um, uh, Melbourne Central. Yeah, absolutely. Which, although soon there will be, I'm sure, a brand new station just around the corner. Yeah, lots of construction, lots of good times. And hopefully not too much dust. <laughs> so those dates again, uh, if you want to catch Not Natural at Science Gallery at the University of Melbourne, co-curated by Burn Hall and Tilly Berlin, uh, it's on until the 29th of June. Entry is free. Uh, and you go to Science Gallery... Uh, 
uh, on the corner of Grattan and Swanson Streets in the city, um, uh, and or online, melbourne.sciencegallery.com. Tilly and Byrne, thank you both so much for coming in. It's been a joy. Uh, time for me to go. Many thanks for the pleasure of your company. It's been delightful to be back after three weeks off sick. Um, I will sadly be off again next week, but that's because I'm going to the Adelaide Festival to see a whole bunch of new work. Um, so stay tuned because Steve and Alicia next week in this slot will be doing a Wom Adelaide music special. So that will be fabulous and fantastic. But right now, also stay tuned for the one, the only funktacular, Mr Chris Gill. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs>